I'm sure you're here because you heard we were going through Malachi and could not wait. Um, it's so good to be with you. Um, my name's Colby. I'm one of the elders here. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, when, when I uh, began following Jesus, uh, I had a lot of expectation of what that would look like and what it would feel like and how I would progress and, and the kind of things that would accompany my life. I even read the Bible some, and, and, and here's what progressively has happened to me. It's not been what I've expected. Anybody else? Like, like I, 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 I'm not trying to be, uh, I'm not trying to blaspheme here, but there was things that I expected inside of this relationship to God there is a speed at which I thought I was going to mature. There is a speed at which I thought I was going to become wise. I thought there would be uh, just like displays of power around me like 24-7. Like you'd have to put a veil on me because the glory of God would just like shine off of me. And then it's just like Tuesday. Right? And, and, um, and so I, I've, I've had to come to grips with that God is orchestrating our relationship in ways that are at times unexpected or orchestrating them in ways that I might not have planned for myself. That, that has nothing to do with His goodness. He's good regardless of whether He meets my expectations or not. Um, if, if, if I kind of wanted to um, talk to some of you in here that maybe um, haven't uh, begun a relationship with Jesus, uh, I, I would maybe put it to you like this. Every married person in here can tell you that marriage is not what you expect it to be when you're single. 100%. Amen or oh me? Come on. Like you had expectations, right? Like, like the woman watched Disney and so she expected him to have a horse that was white and, and that he would just be there and, and just be amazed at her and never stopped looking at her and gazed at her and then then he marries her and then doesn't spray after he leaves the bathroom and the distance between expectation and reality can kind of be something we have to grapple with and come to terms with right um I could go on and on about this. The reason I say that is um, when I started following Jesus, I began to read the Bible and I, I began to come into community like this. And I began to find all kinds of things in the Bible that nobody told me about. I began to find unexpected realities at work that my, my current church experience hadn't even prepared me with the language to know how to speak about such things. Um, I, I've, I've come in uh, then to, to church, and <clears throat> as God began to call me into ministry and to do things, and I began to uh, teach the Bible, and some people would say, oh, that's really powerful what you say, or this is really profound, or that, that's just really, I've never heard that before. For me, I, I don't think that my teaching is impressive or 
powerful in itself. I don't think that what I do up here, I'm, I'm a man just like any of you. What for me has been so profound and powerful is that there's been a rediscovery for me and others of the, what the Bible actually says. That is what's powerful, church. Like, I spend time in study, not simply to come up with something to say other than this. I actually study just so I can as blatantly and straightforward as I can tell you what this says. And I think that that's plenty offensive. It's plenty powerful. It's better than what I could make up or what you could make up or what anything else that we could talk about is what God wants to talk about in His Word. Now let me say this. In our church, we try to do expository teaching book by book the majority of the time. We go verse by verse through things. Let me say this. Probably most of you have never walked verse by verse through the book of Malachi. Anybody? Anybody not been through this book verse by verse? Right? Two or three of you? And so what, what I found is, is that by and large in our church, like if, if we come and I just kind of cherry pick sermons and bounce topic to topic to topic, I'm not sure we ever get into some of the weighty text that God has gifted us by His grace that wants to break our expectations like we're going to find in the book of Malachi. And if I'm going to be faithful to preach to you the whole counsel of God, I have to be faithful to preach things um, that might be uh, disconcerting, might be disorienting to other things that you believe and the expectations that you have of what this thing we call our faith really looks like. Is that fair? Have I prepped you enough? All right? This is a beautiful book. It's going to be all about Jesus. We're going to get there. But, but he's going to say, I, I promise you, there's going to be some things said today that are just going to be troublesome. And I hope that it's that way. Okay? So let me pray for you. My God, you pray for me. Everybody, everybody pray for everybody. All right? And then we're going to get into the Bible. Uh, God help us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. God, praise is befitting of you. Because you're the author of the eternal word that's immutable, unshakable, unchangeable. God, it's dynamite in our hands. And so God, make your word powerful to your people today. Illuminate that we might understand it. Where it says things that offends us. Help us to absorb those things, deal with those things. God, we want to sing at the top of our lungs how great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. And so come and love us and show us what your love looks like biblically that that might be the song on our lips. Come and make Malachi your messenger again to tell us about Jesus. Elements of his great love for us. God, we pray that in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. If you got a Bible, hope you do, open it to Malachi chapter 1. Uh, we got a job, we got a little background, a little context. Um, we just finished the book of Galatians, and if I had to transition 
from Galatians to Malachi, I would say like the Pauline epistle Galatians, the book of Malachi begins in the indicative mood before it moves to the imperative mood. That is, God tells you things, realities, He states things before He ever commands you to do something. And so biblical faith is always both imperatives and indicatives. But obedience is always a response to God's actions. What God has already done to us, all of the things that we do are responses to that. Amen? Or we got to go back to Galatians? Right? I'll do it. All right? We'll do six more months. All right? So, because you are totally depraved and in bondage to sin, you have a freed with a D at the end, will, you don't have necessarily free will. Your will is used to serve sin, and so God must free your will so that you might serve Him. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so this same reality is not exclusive to the New Testament. So we're going to transition right into what Malachi is going to do, and Malachi is going to use prose. He's going to use a form of kind of basic writing um, to expose some of the sin of God's people. Now, that's kind of co- uncommon for most prophets because a lot of times when you talk in hyperbole or you, you, you're trying to come at a topic through the back door of the imagination, the prophets would use poetry, art. They, they would use song. Um, we, we went through the book of Habakkuk and we saw that Habakkuk breaks out the end of his book in a song. Malachi is rather straightforward and, and what's brilliant about his style is it's actually satire so if you're into babylon b or the onion right and if you don't know what those things are they're making fun of you and you don't even know it all right it's it's a he's going to come around and he's going to say your positions are so ridiculous that it's almost satirical how i have to come and come and dismantle them. So that's, that's kind of the, the shape of, of how he does it, was with rhetorical questions, and in the midst of this conversation um, that, that's playing out, we're going to learn something more deeper about God and His heart and His actions and His, his activity um, in history and in the universe. Now, Malachi is one of the, what's called the 12 minor prophets. Okay? Twelve minor prophets. And they're often um, divided into triplets. And so the triplet from which Malachi is a part of is Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. They're what's considered the post-exile. So after the children of Israel come back from Babylonian captivity, there's three major books in the minor prophets. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. This book took place, his ministry took place about a hundred years after the decree of Cyrus in 538, which allowed the end of the Babylonian captivity. About a hundred years ago, they, they moved back into Israel. The Jews returned to their homeland and began to rebuild, um, in 2 Chronicles 36, they began to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. So, you know, the, the, the every men's conference ever is always talking about the book of Nehemiah. And Ezra, because that's the time when they came back from Babylonian captivity and began to rebuild the thing. This is roughly 80 years. Malachi comes about 80 years after the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah. Their preaching was received, eh, you know? Uh, (laughs) If you've ever been to one of those sermons. Um, You're like, I'm in one of those sermons now. Um, 
there began to be a warming to the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah to the things of God as the Jews returned into Israel. But their, their repentance and their return to God, even though they physically came back to Jerusalem, they didn't spiritually fully come back to God. Right? Uh, I don't know if you've ever been here before. It's kind of the same way. Like, there's times where my heart was still a long ways from God, but I was coming to church. Like, I physically came to church, but my heart was not in the presence of God. And so sometimes our, where we're at spiritually and where we're at physically don't match the same thing, right? Oh, is that too real? Okay, we'll just keep going. All right. The thing was, is when the Jews came back to Israel after the Babylonian captivity, it had, it had incredibly damaged the community. Um, it was just tough sledding. For, by and large, they had an insignificant territory. The territory that they returned to was roughly 20 miles by 30 miles. Um, they had maybe a population of 150,000 people, and while Persia gave them freedom of religion, uh, which we're losing here, which is fun, uh, and limited self-rule, they were still subjugated by a foreign power. And, and as a result of that, their neighbors, including Edom, which we're going to get in today, which are the descendants of Esau, bullied them. So they, they escaped the Babylonian captivity just to come and be kind of a footnote in history where all their neighbors are just beating them up all the time. And so there is this sense in which they... They felt like they, they weren't really right with God. Not only this, the kingdom of Israel was no longer ruled by a Davidic king. They rebuilt the temple, and it seemed like a knockoff version from the one that Solomon built. And even it talks about that God's presence, His manifested glory, did not dwell inside of the new temple they built like it did before. Matter of fact, Malachi is going to get into this. This is awesome that God's manifested glory and His presence is not going to come back into the temple until He Himself walks in there. And, and if you haven't read the New Testament, when Jesus, all right, Sunday school answer. All right, so, so there's a sense in which spiritually, despite all the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah, the coming Messiah and the glorious presence, they experience kind of a spiritual destitution, uh, Lethargy, they were mediocre, they were, they were like there but not there. Um, let, me, let me say it to you like this, and, and I hope this really strikes us in America, because this is where this book for me just, just hammers us. Unlike other uh, books of the Bible and other seasons uh, of which God was working, these books, including Malachi, is a period marked with candid descriptions of God's people lacking miraculous evidences of God's presence. A candid description of God's people lacking miraculous evidences of God's presence. So let me put it like this. If you've ever read the book of Acts and then like looked at Texas and you're like, well, where is this happening in Texas? Or you look at the book of Acts and you look at the miracles that God did in the, in the Exodus and you say, why isn't God doing things like that in Colorado? Anybody? So what, what, what this, these last three books in the post-exile is saying, 
is that God is not given the covenant blessings of His manifested presence and the working of miracles to people who aren't really there with Him. And so there's a sense in which you can call yourself my people. You, and, and here's what's crazy about it. It's not that they have blatant heresy. Like, unlike other times in the Bible, they are not in blatant idolatry making golden calves. They believe all the right things. They just don't care about what they believe about. Does that make sense? It means so little to them. What's, what's interesting about the Bible, if you actually look at miracles, they're rare. By definition, miracles are rare. It's outside the kind of paradigm of how things work. And they tend to happen around certain events, certain things where God's displaying who He is, and miracles just kind of tend to cosign that God is in that. Like, if you've ever noticed, they all around Jesus. Right? Anybody? Like, they're just all around Jesus. Right? But you have hundreds of years that go throughout the Bible where there's nothing miraculous that happens. And that's kind of where we come into Malachi. They're kind of Candace that they're walking with God. But there's a spiritual apathy. The theme of this book is spiritual is the cost of spiritual apathy, the lack of their intentional worship, the kind of religion that kills, why the heart matters, spiritual boredom, like where the kingdom of God becomes boring, a lack of living generous, These are the things at which Malachi is going to come. And so, so here's the thing. A building project by Ezra and Nehemiah is not going to change their heart. It's merely going to be the, the activity of Jesus Christ that's going to transform them ultimately and looking forward to God's promise of the Messiah. This book concerns the corrupted priesthood, worship which became routine, Widespread divorce, which mocked God's covenant-keeping Himself. The ignoring of justice. I don't like to use the word social justice because I don't know what it means. Right? I like to say justice, justice. And so social justice is, I mean, it depends what people mean when they say that, I guess. God is concerned with justice, justice. And so I roll with that. They had a disregard for tithing and generosity and giving to the things of God. This book both predicts the coming of John the Baptist and Jesus, who is the true temple, who ushers in the messianic age. Jesus, the great high priest. Jesus, the one who never divorces his church. Jesus, the one who is our justice. The one who is our offering and the one who gave it all. If you want to know what their dead orthodoxy was about, just follow the trail of ethical compromises and the attempt to dilute the hard parts of their worship, and you find exactly what they're about. In the slumber of their cynicism and the religious muck that they were drowning in, Malachi comes in like an ambulance siren to wake them up. And that's where we're at. And so, uh, I, don't, I don't know how easy this book is going to be this morning, but... Uh, let's just dive into it and see, see where we get. Everybody cool with it? Gives you a little context of 
maybe kind of the smell that was going around at the time. So maybe that puts in context what we're going to look at. The oracle or burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So this is a letter intended for God's people sent by a messenger named Malachi. Now, Malachi as a name means my messenger, my angel. And some would say, is this a title or is this his name? I'm going to argue that it's both because oftentimes in this culture, your name and your occupation or the things that you were about oftentimes aligned with one another. And so Malachi is both a name and a title of this messenger. And here's the truth. You know how much we know about Malachi? Very little. Here's the point. He's the messenger. He's not the message. He's the messenger. He's not the message. God is the message. Sometimes... um, Sometimes it, there's a way in which in Christianity we can make it all about us and people get distracted by the messengers and they never get around to actually hearing the message. Amen? Malachi, we know so little about him, but we know so much about his God. He's not going to get in the way. He's not going to meddle. He's not going to block. He's going to give great perspective to what God actually who he actually is and what he's about. It says here the oracle, and I've taught this before when we went through the Old Testament. The word here, Messiah, for oracle also means burden. The burden that came with being God's messenger. And for any of us who felt the weight of of what it means to have somebody that we love that is lost and feel the burden of God to try to share the truth with them, we get this. If any of us have ever had a wayward brother and sister in Christ that started getting off in a whole bunch of stupidity and foolishness and we felt a burden from God that we got to say something to them. Has anybody ever felt that burden? That's the burden of Malachi. That whether he likes it or not, there's something weighty, something important that God has called him to do. Let me say it like this. The Bible is not Newsweek magazine. It's not candy. It's not comic books. Right? There's some reading that you can do that's sugary. It's entertainment. What we get out the gate here is some some of the things that God has to say to you are heavy things, church. They're heavy things. Um, One thing we've, we've tried to change in the culture of our church and we've tried to say here is he who sees the problem gets the job. Right? You could talk about how important you think kids are to the next generation of the church, but are you signing up to help with VBS? Right? Um, this is why just certain critiques, and we, we joke about this as elders, it's like if you're not willing to get involved to make it better, like it's really hard for us to hear you. Is that fair? Like you come in and say, I don't like the way Cliff looks. None of us do. <laughs> All right? Shaved his beard. We didn't know you looked like that. Right? But if you're not willing to help with worship to make it better, right? I don't know what you want me to do, okay? So if you see the problem, you get the responsibility to do something about it, right? Matter of fact, 
a lot of, I know we got some young people in the house. A lot of people come to me trying to figure out what is their calling, what is what does Jesus call them to, what what are they supposed to use their life for? And I ask them, what do you have a burden for? What is something that's hard and messy that when you read the word or you look in your culture, it breaks your heart? And, and, and if you didn't do something about it, you would be doing an injustice with your existence. Go after that. Listen, you may not be, you may not be able to tackle every evil in American society. Despite how good you retweet stuff and share stuff on Facebook thinking that that actually does anything. You may not be able to fix everything that's wrong in the world. But you can plunge your life into one thing very deeply and make an impact. Amen or oh me? So, so here's what I want to know. Church, what is your burden? Who is it the people group on the earth that you have a burden that they know the gospel? What, what, what sin issue are you combating with your life? What truth of scripture are you heralding and making known publicly. Listen, you ain't got to be an expert on everything, but if you're an expert on Jesus, you better be getting engaged with the battle somewhere. Is that fair? He who sees the problem gets the job. Malachi sees things. He's been given a vision by God, and the response to that is a weighty thing that lives on his life. And I've taught this before, but I, I think it just bears reiterating. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in spirit. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is a burden that comes with following Jesus. It's just a lighter burden than what the world has to offer. So if you walk around as a Christian and you're going to tell me that you're following Jesus, but you don't have any burdens to love like Jesus loved, or to fight like Jesus fought, or to preach like Jesus preached? Tell me again how He's your Lord. Like I'm confused. He has a good burden. It's easy, it's light, it's better than any of the slavery to the things of the world that we had before. I'll amen myself. I'm good. It's alright. Y'all just sit out there. Listen, we're here all day. It gets hotter in the middle of the day. We ain't got no AC. Um, Verse 2, I have, (laughs) this is awesome, I've loved you. God comes and starts this book and just says, I loved, I have loved you. I've got a track, I've loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how, how, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? Okay, um, here's, here's the difference. What God says, I've loved you versus what they say. And and really, this is Garden of Eden, the original doubt leading to the original sin. Did God really say? Here's what God says. I've loved you. Here's what they say. I don't know how. God, listen, church, and I'm not saying this to everyone. Listen, church, God says that He has loved you like His bride the rest of what everybody else says is just commentary. I wonder how it would change believers if they woke up and the first thing that came to their mind was how much God really loved them. If they started their day, their week, their moments, their years, pondering 
how much God has loved them. Um, but you say, how? And I get this. The love of God by His people is unappreciated and unacknowledged. Um, I, 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 there's so many ways to teach this um, inside the church because I think that we talk a lot about God's love, but because we're not honest about sin and hell and justice and wrath, it really doesn't mean anything. Because we talk, it's like, well, of course God loves me. I'm awesome, right? And that's what we think when we read the Bible. We say, I have characteristics inside myself that are awesome, and God loves those things. What's not to love? That is completely antithetical to the reality of the Scriptures. The reality of the Scriptures are, you are an enemy of God who deserves nothing but wrath and hell, and God came and took that wrath and hell upon Himself in the person and work of Jesus making his enemy into his bride. Get a load of that. So unless you're honest about what we deserve and honest about sin, you can talk about God's, God's love all day long, but it kind of falls on deaf ears. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so um, we tend to, in American culture, we have um, complained about a certain type of preaching, and I just don't get it, okay? I don't get it at all. Um, here's what I mean. Um, you will hear people talk about that they grew up in something called fire and brimstone. Who here knows what that means? You know what I'm saying? They say, I grew up in that fire and brimstone. You know, we never heard about God's love or, you know, that sort of thing. Okay, I'm, I'm, I understand that. There was a time when that happened. I would just try to talk to people. It's like, how many churches do you think in a 50-mile radius of here are quote-unquote fire and brimstone. <laughs> People are like, probably 0.0, right? So I understand that at one time, there was a time where people, at expense to God's love, overemphasized possibly the, the justice and the wrath of God. They tried to scare people into a relationship with God. God's love was just a footnote. Those people are not us. We're the people that talk extensively about God's love. He loves us so much, he buys us Cadillacs. Right? That's, that's American Christianity. Right? God loves us so much. And, and, and there's churches that intentionally do not use the word sin. Or justice. Or hell. Right? So I, I'm not saying there wasn't a fire and brimstone culture. It just ain't ours anymore, right? And so sometimes when we, we use then, now, God's love, it doesn't, it doesn't hit us the same way, right? Okay, uh, maybe let me bring it home to you like this. So I got five kids, um, all of them deviant, all right? They all need Jesus. Pray for all of them, all right? If you're praying for VBS, you're praying for mine, all right? Um, and I have... Because I'm an awesome dad, I think that it's, it's, it's important for me to try to make memories with my kids. So I will plan camp trips. I'll plan things that I don't even want to do just because I like my kids, right? And I want to make memories for them, right? Believe this or not, I'm trying to take my kids to a Colorado Rockies baseball game. That right there is a testament of the grace of God working them out. You know how much I want to go to that game? Zero. I'm <laughs> point zero. I'm taking a book, all right? 
Um, but I want to build memories for my kids. Who here has ever planned a vacation? So excited. You put imagination into it. You were, you were stoked. You packed treats in the car. You had everything lined up. You don't even get out the door. And the kid starts complaining. Right? Or every vacation you've ever taken kids on. Right? And they get going and you're like, oh, there's all this stuff. Disney is an amazing waste of money. Right? Right? And, and you get there and the kid just does not acknowledge where they're at or what they're doing. You're like, I paid real money to be here with you. I could have went with people I like. I love you. I'm trying to make this for you. And they complain, oh, it's this, oh, it's that, oh. And you're like, and, and in those moments, you just want to just, I, like, love them. And, and like, oh, return to me, wayward son, right? What is happening? They, they don't acknowledge what's going on. I, I mean, we've said this about marriage over and over again. You can go on dates, which are just set-apart times to fight with your spouse. Right? Because here's what happens. There's th- I say this all the time. There is things that my wife does at my house I do not see, and oftentimes I don't acknowledge, I don't accept. And so I, because I didn't see it happen, did it even really happen? Right? And there's things that I do for her that she doesn't see. And so a lot of times we assume the worst about what others are doing. And so we begin to think that they're doing nothing to love us because we can't see the tangible evidence of it. Anybody ever had a fight with their spouse over that? Right? If you loved me, you would serve me by doing this thing, right? If you loved me, you would do this sort of stuff. Well, I'm doing all of these things. And you get into these tensions of where the other person may be genuinely doing things to love you, but you're unconscious to them. Listen, we talked about Jacob and Esau last week, which I think is a great lead into this because we're going to talk about God loving Jacob and hating Esau, which is going to be fun. All right? And so, but the, the point of that sermon is, is that Jacob was spiritually unaware at Bethel. He just goes and buys groceries and he does his life and he camps and he, he, he goes through the motions of life. And, and he becomes aware because God rips back the curtain of reality and shows the spiritual realm that invades the physical realm. And he shows him the ladder and angels ascending and descending, which is a picture of Jesus. And he says, God was in this place and I didn't know it. Church, I believe that every Christian in here is going to be baffled in heaven by how often God loved them and shepherded them and cared for them. And we we idiots had no idea. And we, we, we show up to church and we mumble the song. That's our response. Right? I think all of us are going to be baffled by how often God loved us And what he gave us, I think we're going to be baffled by how much God loved us by what he kept away from us. They couldn't appreciate the love of God that was being displayed for them. This is the most inappropriate story I'm going to tell maybe all year, and I'm just going to ask for apologies. But it just brings this story home so well. Um, Please don't fire me. 
Okay, so we went to France for two months, and I love museums. I enjoy the Louvre. The Louvre is the greatest museum in the world. I didn't, I, I went to Musée d'Orsay and uh, Musée d'Orangerie and some other ones. I don't like impressionistic painting. I'm sorry if that's your thing. I don't like water lily. I don't like painting that looked like the painter was blind. <laughs> like you have to like squint to kind of, was he on drugs? Is he from Colorado? Mushrooms are legal. You know, like, I, I just don't get it. I like things that are clear, and I, there's a lot of Baroque things that I like. So I went, to, oh man, probably shouldn't have done this story. Anyways, the, I went to this Impressionistic Museum, and the thing about taking kids there is that there's just naked sculptures of women everywhere, all right? And there's paintings everywhere. And I, you don't know what to do with your kids. I'm like, God, I hope my kids are not old enough to really appreciate what's happening right now. And so we're just kind of going through, and they have these beautiful paintings of these women that are up, and I'm, I'm, and pre, and we, we didn't see them coming. We were kind of in the water lilies, the ponds, the trees, you know, all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, I was, I was working super hard so that my kids understood the value of what we were looking at. I'm like, so these painters, they deviated from classical form and see the colors and the pastels. You know, it looks like Easter or whatever. You know, like, and I'm, you know, they tried to do this and this, and my kids are just like, don't know, don't care they're wrestling, you know what I mean, like inside a museum, I'm like, do not tackle that painting, like, <laughs> it's worth the state of Colorado, right, like, we can't afford this, and so, so we come, but we, we come into it, my kids never pay attention to any, anything in the art, but they come by, neck, neck, like, this naked woman on the thing, and they just look, and they say, dad, look at the feeders on that one, and I said, I said, what, now, we have had three kids in three years, so breastfeeding's kind of been a thing. So I was like, all right, well, let's just go on. Let's just go to the park or something. So here's what I grasp from this. My kids go to one of the most famous museums in the world, Monet, Monet, Monet. I don't know what their names are. They bite their cousin's ears. They're crazy people. They paint paintings. And my sons walk away thinking about breastfeeding. Welcome to culture, people. Right? I say that because I, for most rednecks I could take into this museum, that's what they're getting out of it too, all right? Like there's a part of which you can go and see impressionistic paintings, and if you're not trained, if you don't know what's going on, if you don't know the context of what, where that came from and what it's expressing, unacknowledged, unappreciated. And I wonder sometimes how we talk about God's love, the reason why it's unacknowledged, unappreciated. Well, for lost people, it's because they love their sin. Let's be clear about that. But for the church, the reason why we don't acknowledge it, we don't appreciate it, is because we've taken it out of context. We're not saying God is love. We're saying love is God. And those are drastically different things. unacknowledged, unappreciated. The church, we didn't, like when God said he loved them, they didn't know what they were looking at. God's holiness is spectacular. It's magnificent. And the Bible is going to kind of suggest that there's no possible reason for spiritual boredom. 
when you're standing before something so historic, so deep, so powerful, so eternal, like boredom, lethargy, apathy, it's to be repented of. Are you tracking so far? That's, that stuck mentality of faith that I know I'm his people and I know that I sin and I know I should do better. I know I should be better. I'm Christian, but I'm just Christian enough to be boring. Because I don't, he doesn't have all of my heart. I'm boring and my Christianity is just Christian enough so that I don't get in trouble. When God says he loves me, does it move the thermostat at all? Am I paying attention? Um, while we were in Paris, um, I, it was kind of a joke and it was tongue in cheek, but I realized like, I'm here with my wife in Paris, like that's great. And we don't have all of our kids, you know? It's close to a date as you get, okay? So we would go places, and I'd just be like, over-the-top romantic, which I, I usually am. <laughs> and, but we would go places, and I'd say, Whitney, girl, I love you so much, in front of people to where I try to embarrass her. i say, y'all see this girl over here? I love her so much. She's like, what are you doing? I said, it's Paris, man. It just it has an effect, right? I said, are you hungry? I'll buy every piece of bread in that bakery. She's like, you know we can't afford that. I said, that's facts. <laughs> uh, we went by, they sell like flowers in the metro, like in the train station. And I said, hey, Whitney, you just got her some flowers. Every day I said, girl, are those flowers not enough for you? I'm about to buy you more flowers. She's like, you are so ridiculous. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I said, and I would just try to find some way. I was like, you like the Eiffel Tower? I'll cut it down for you, <laughs> Right? Show me a French person that can stop me. <laughs> and she'd be like, you're so out of control. And I just, so I just tried to look at some situation to where I could be ridiculously romantic with her and discouragingly so it moved the needle zero, all right? <laughs> like, because she just did not trust what was going on. Like, she's like, what are you doing? And I was like, all right, well, there's always, you know, our next anniversary. Uh, so, but here's the question. And I think that it's legitimate for them. How do you love us? How do you love us? How do you love us? God, how do you love us? Church, let me say this. The hatred of God towards sin and sinners, the love of God towards sin and sinners, the love and hatred of God, they meet at the cross. You want to know? I, 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 here's a spoiler alert for the end of the sermon. You want to know where, where the, the wrath of God and the mercy of God meet? They meet at the cross. You want to know how he's loved you? Look at Jesus dying in your place. And that's God's definitive response to that question. But this question for them is almost accusatory. Have you ever had people that ask questions that are really not questions? They're actually just accusations? You know, it's like, have you been this stupid your whole life? Or did, is it like a new thing? Right? Well, it's like, that's not really a question, you know? And so, so th there's a sense in which their, their thing is like, God, look at us. we got 20 by 30 miles of land. Our people are destitute. The Jews are spread all over. And diaspora, they're, they're, we, 
the temple's like kind of lame sauce and and like our walls are destroyed our neighbors eat them or like bullying us it's like how you saying that you're loving us but we don't feel very loved like we don't feel very blessed here's what god's answer is and i'm going to tell you right now i don't believe that you're you're going to appreciate how serious and how powerful this answer is god's answer to them is i chose you God's answer is, I chose you. Out of all the nations, you think there wasn't other pagans in the Ur of the Chaldees I could have chose besides Abraham? I chose him. I chose Isaac and not Ishmael. I chose Jacob and not Esau. I chose you. I could have chose anybody out of the whole planet, and I chose you to be my people. Right? Listen to what it says. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? We talked about this last week. Those are the two twins. They're twin boys. The older came out first. He was hairy. We said he got that sweater vest with his shirt off, right? Red and hairy. The second kid came out smooth, grabbing the heel. He was a deceiver. And I went to great lengths to kind of tell their story about how Esau traded his birthright for temporary gratification. His place And his destiny and his calling, he traded it for a bowl of bean stew. Jacob lied to his father, and the first time that we see Jacob ever use God's name, it's to lie to someone. These are wicked boys. Jacob and Esau. And I pose this to you. Which one's good? Which one deserves to be God's people? Neither. Let me put it to you like this. How many murderers deserve to be pardoned? None. How many people deserve to go to hell? All of them. All. Do you realize that if God saves nobody, He's still perfectly just because He is condemning sin the way justice deserves for sin to be condemned? He ain't obligated to save five people. Or five million. It's an act of his volition and choosing and will that he saves any of us. So don't get it twisted. Both of these boys, Jacob and Esau, are are totally evil. God just calls one. God just transforms one. God just renames one. God still deals with the weakness and the stupidity of one. He's angry temporarily with one. But with the other, he's eternally angry. That's a picture of hell. He has cast them off. That is the language here of the text. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Jacob I've loved, and Esau I've hated. So let me me survey the Bible, and I want to let the Bible kind of speak for itself on this topic. I don't give a flip about Calvinism and Arminianism. I give a flip about what the Bible says. John 6.44 No one can come to me, this is Jesus speaking, unless the Father who sent me draws him. So let me put it to you this way. You know how many people are coming to the Father? As many as the Father draws him. And you say, well, God calls everybody. That's not fact because the end of the verse says, 
I will raise him up on the last day. Those that are called are raised up. John 15, 16. Jesus here says, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed. Right? Didn't sound like you, you, you chose your calling. God appointed your calling so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give to you. Okay? Flip your Bibles. I want you to open your Bibles. Uh, let's do Ephesians first. And then we're going to get to where Malachi here is directly quoted in the New Testament. I think it's going to speak for itself. Fortunately, I lost my spot. Uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul. Y'all heard of him? Semi-important. Oh, two-thirds of the New Testament. An apostle of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1. Start in verse 1. An apostle by the will of man or God? God. To the saints that are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he, what's your Bible say? Chose. Who chose? He chose. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Were you born before the foundation of the world? No. Before you were born and the world had its founding, God chose you. If your mind isn't kind of like blowing out the sideways, just hang on with us. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us. Listen, the fact of the matter is the word election, choosing, and predestination are biblical words. I listen, Christian, I don't care how you fall on these words as long as you're biblically consistent here. These are words that have to have a place in your faith and how you understand what God has done for you. Because Malachi is saying that that choosing is an expression of how God has loved you. Do you understand the gravity of how those are connected? I'm probably not doing a great job of this, but you know. Bottom dollar, you get what you pay for. He predestined us for adoption as sons. How many adopted people choose their parents? Zero. Parents choose the children that they adopt. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. So if there's a free will here, it's the free will of God and His purposes to get at you. Do you know that God uh, he loved you? To the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Seven, in Him we have redemption through His blood. That sounds like the gospel. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery, that's something unknown, of His will, according to the purpose which He set forth in Christ. As the plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him, we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things to the counsel of His will. So that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also 
when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. If that's not me, I don't know what is. Except for maybe this next one. Turn over. He's going to directly quote, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. It's in Romans chapter 9. Romans is the expanded version of Galatians. Galatians is like the clip notes of the book of Romans. So you're going to hear a lot of the same themes that we just finished in Galatians. Romans chapter 9. Uh, verse 1. This is Apostle Paul talking. I'm speaking the truth in Christ and I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I wish that I myself was accursed or damned to be cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's talking about that he wants the Jews to be so saved. He wants people to be saved so bad that he's willing to go to hell himself. I mean, that's, a, that's the missionary heart. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever and ever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God failed. They are not missing salvation because the word of God failed. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. We just talked about that. It's not the blood in your veins that makes you a son of Abraham or a daughter of Abraham. It's faith in your heart. He's saying the same exact thing that we read in Galatians. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Pause. Hold on to this. Verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. Have you heard that in Malachi so far? Jacob I have loved, Esau I have heard. Not that they've done anything before they had done anything good or bad, before they were yet born, it's because of God's calling and not because of their works. She was told this, verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will, human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whom he wills. Listen, right now, pause. Don't get mad at the preacher. I just read you the Bible. You hear what I'm saying? 
I want you to grapple with the reality that a part of what God did when he loved you was that he chose you long before you became aware of it. Turn back in Malachi. Look at what he says. How have you loved us? Loved us. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob and Esau have hated. He says, you don't know how I've loved you, I chose you. I, let me pause and kind of break this down the only way I can. Uh, I've never watched the show The Bachelor. Never. But I, I mean, I see enough people tweet about it or talk about it that I get the gist. I, I, it's for sure a man who came up with this television show. Just pause right there. Pause, put that up there. A man gets chosen <laughs> to be The Bachelor, and, and from what I gather, they just bring tons of beautiful single women to try to convince this man to marry them. It's like the opposite of the gospel. So these girls like dress up, they try, to, they try to look a certain way, they try to be cool, they try to connect with him, maybe physically or other things, and, and they, try to con- they try to show off how awesome they are so that this bachelor out of all these women might choose them. Anybody watch the show? No, no, you convicted now. You're like, I ain't talking about it. Even if I watched the show, I would not raise my hand, right? So, so the, the thing about The Bachelor is it's completely opposite of what God does. God doesn't look out apart, upon the planet and say, oh my gosh, like Jacob Posey is so beautiful, so smart, and physically fit. Yo, girl, you need to calm down. You're moving his thermostat. Um, Right? Like he's not he's not going out. He's like, of course I want that kind of that kind of people. That's my people. This is my people. Because that would not explain why some of you are in here. All right. I just made you'll get that next week. I just made fun of you. You didn't even didn't even get it. Like God says, no. There are people with physical infirmities that God chooses. There are people that have mental handicaps that God chooses. There are people that are black that God chooses. There are people that are white that God chooses. There are people that are Asian. He is gathering from every tongue, tribe, and nation. He woos them and he calls them. He pursues them and he loves them and he saves them and he makes them his bride. And, and I, I think this is so powerful because for many of us that got married, I mean, besides a couple of y'all got arranged marriages or whatever. Um, <laughs> that's not funny, apparently. Um, most of us, if we were asked about our marriage, one of the things that people ask a lot of times is, how did you meet? Anybody ever had someone ask you that about your marriage? How did you meet? And some smiles go across the room. You start thinking about that story, and then you start thinking, you know, have I forgotten that story, and will I be in trouble when I get home? You know, but it's like, how did you meet? How? And, and, and generally, a lot of times what happens is like the man has a plan. He's like, I'm, I want this girl. I, I pursue her. He, or, he like, you know, he like puts on deodorant and he invests his money in f- taking her to food. Might like knock the soda bottles out of the pickup truck. You know, like there's planning and there's, pre- there's pursuit and there's activity, right? And he, a lot of times like uh, he chooses her before she chooses him, right? Have you ever been that? Like some of our marriages in here were that. 
like he was he was for sure in on her and was ready to marry her and pursued her and loved her and she's like no nah, i don't think so <laughs> not today <laughs> right and he kept pursuing and he kept chasing and doesn't that kind of like doesn't that kind of like lighten our hearts some like aren't we compelled by that story and i mean isn't it basically every romantic comedy ever written bit of a predictable plot in those types of movies yeah this is what God has done. He's not looking out and saying that when you try to impress God by your works and your activities and your beauty or something inside of yourself in order for God to save you, you're earning your salvation and it's just religion. But if it's truly grace, nothing that you merited, nothing that you deserve, but God called you, He loved you, He saved you, Everything in our life is just a response to what he did to us. When he called us, when he wooed us, when he, when he opened our eyes to see the gospel, when he paid the bridal price of Jesus on the cross. And that's why I think the church is appropriately called the bride of Christ. Let me iterate this to some of you. There's a lot of people in your life, your parents may not care about you, um, there's relationships, whether that's sexual or dating or mar- other things that you get into, and people can change their mind, they can abandon you, they can quit on you. God chose you. And though all the world rejects you, that if you can understand that God chose you, you're going to make it. People can abandon you, people can leave you, people can quit on you. But God is not leaving or forsaking you, He's not abandoning you. He chose you, and He doesn't divorce His church. Isn't that awesome? What's interesting about this uh, in France is that, you know, hundreds of thousands of Christians were killed in France in the Protestant Reformation. And, and they looked at doctrines like election, like predestination, like God choosing them, and it gave them iron in their spine to suffer well. The doctrine for them was not some ivory towery, ivory tower thing that seminary grads argue about that's just stupid. It for them was a thing that said, if God has chosen me and sustains me, then even though I fail, though my strength fails, God will not fail on my behalf. There is Christians throughout ages who have looked at God's love in choosing them and found it to be a source of strength when all other power fails. Let me finish this up. Esau, I have hated. This should not be weird to us with the language. Jesus says, unless you basically choose me over mother, father, children, lands, even over yourself, by comparison, unless you hate. Now, he did, he's not against mothers and fathers and all those things. He created mothers. He created fathers. He created all of those things. But by differentiating, you choose me, it must be above and superior to any other relationship that you choose. He talks about that in Luke. I have laid waste to his hill country and his heritage left to jackals of the desert. Now, in Colorado, you've got to understand this. People put up fences because if you just let your kids go play in the yard, they're going to be carried off by like a mountain lion or a bear. And so, like some of you have probably lost pets uh, to jackals of the desert. Um, so... Keep an eye out there, people. Stay safe. 
Verse 4, if Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country. So listen, Jake, Esau is a person. The people that came from him is Edom. Jacob is a person. His name's changed to Israel. The people that come from him are called Israel. So is this about the person or the people? It's about both. Because he says Esau in one, then he switches and he'll say to Edom. Edom is known by their sin, the wicked country. Israel is known by their relationship to God. That's the difference. He says they're known as a wicked country. They are just justly deserving of the retribution of God towards their sin. They are the wicked country. They do evil to themselves and to those around them. And the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. This is not that God is displeased with your sin. He rebukes you. He breaks you. He corrects it. And it's pacified because Christ has suffered the wrath for you. This is angry forever. There is nothing between a holy God and your sin. And the eternal consequences of that are being dealt out. Both temporally here in your life and eternally in hell. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So here's basically what's going on. God says, I love Jacob. I've chosen Jacob. Israel's my people. Esau's saying, and I'm going to, and, and a lot of that, not only are you weak, but I'm going to build you up and I'm going to cause you to grow and to flourish in ways that nobody can stop you. Nobody. Like, I have eternal plans for my church that are unstoppable. Likewise, Edom looks more powerful from you than you right now. And they're persecuting you. Which has kind of always been the thing, hasn't it? Like Esau persecuted Jacob. Edom persecutes Israel. Even this, do you know that King Herod descended from Edom? Who killed all the babies trying to persecute Jesus who descended through Israel? And so he says, Edom thinks they're strong and that they can bully you. But let me tell you the truth. I'm going to destroy them. And within a matter of years, in, their whole existence is not going to be on the map anymore. Like you can't like travel today and just south of like Syria is Edom. It's not there. The Nabataean kingdom of nomads came in and persecuted them and destroyed them. You know the Nabataeans, right? Uh, have you ever seen uh, Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade? When he goes into Petra, that rock face thing? That was built by the Nabataeans. They come in about 100 years later or so, and they smoke Edom. It's gone. Edom's going to do that kind of CrossFit thing, or that motivational poster thing. It's like, sure, we got knocked in the dirt, but I'm going to get back up, and I'm going to rebuild it. You know what I mean? Do you ever see those kind of quotes on social media, or you hear people talk, it's like, yeah, I got knocked down, but I'm just going to keep getting back up, keep it, well, wait a minute, wait, 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 maybe you should ask the question, Edom, whether you should be building evil the way you're building evil. Maybe it's getting knocked down because it shouldn't be built in the first place. See, the thing about Edom's is they never ask the question of whether their lives are actually serving the right things or not. And so when God knocks them down, they get back up, knocks them down, they get back up, and that's not an expression of his mercy. That's actually him eternally frustrating their plans. So let me put it to you like this. 
God is working in such a way that His people cannot ultimately fail and in a way that's such that the wicked cannot ultimately succeed. Some of us are building companies, relationships, governments, images, all kinds of things. And I wonder if we actually believe that if the Lord is not in the house, the laborers labor in vain. He's eternally frustrating Edom as a judgment against them. Here's what he says at the end. Your own eyes will see this. That is, you're going to become an eyewitness to the fact. And I know it's hard for young people. I, I talk about this all the time. Right now, things that you feel are cool when you're 15 or when you're 25 are going to be ridiculous in a matter of years. I've seen people that I partied with when I was young and I thought they were living the life and I thought they had that stuff. I thought they had life figured out. They had the best possible life. And in a matter of years, their sins found them out and they were absolutely devastated. It's like God's saying, if you take a snapshot of reality right now, sure, it looks like Edom is better off than you. But this is not a series of snapshots. This is a full-length film. And church, I got you. I got you. Let the plot play out a little bit. Edom's not going to be on the map. And one day in heaven, there's an unstoppable glory that awaits you. Your eyes are going to see this. You're going to become a witness of these things. And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. He will make your own eyes see that he's not a local deity, but he's the Lord over the whole earth. Put that in your heart and sing from that place. God is without borders. You have borders. You have limitations. God is without limitations. Put that truth in your heart and sing it. There is nothing that you brought to the table that caused God to love you. He did it because he chose you and of his own mercy, he wanted you. You're wanted by God. Sing from that reality. I, I want to say this last thing and then we're done. Um, I hate traveling. Uh, I, it seems weird because I've, Africa, I've been all over the world and I've traveled all this stuff. But like after you travel a few times, the nostalgia of travel wears off real quick, right? Like I see some parents out there with like teenage kids. I can't wait till my kids can drive me places. You know what I'm saying? Um, I just, it's, it's hard. But I, the thing is, I, we, we, <laughs> really funny. It's like we fly in these planes to go places and I'm so thankful for technology. Praise God for technology. I'm not mad about it. Um, like now they got like games on the back of the headrest where you can, you can watch movies and you can play games. My kids had never played Angry Birds before. And so, the, like, they had their headrest with the Angry Birds, and my kids are just like, pow, 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 pow. The people in front of them just bouncing their heads. I was like, whose kids are these? Uh, right? But travel's easier now, and I, I appreciate that. I don't want to be a complainer because, like, it is way easier. But technically, all I want to do is teleport from here to there. Right? I just, I want to be with people. I want to be places I don't want to travel the distance, the cost that it takes to get there. Does that make sense? And so the thing is, is that as I have traveled and seen, the one thing that I've realized is once you get there, 
you realize that all kinds of things have been happening and life has went on that you were completely unconscious. You didn't know what was going on. Like one thing about when we came back to France is that I went into our church and there's a ton of people I didn't know. And I told the leaders I was so excited about that. I hope I come back one day and there's virtually nobody I know there. Right? Because as long as they're reaching people and growing people, I mean, we cried and loved and, and sang with the, the people that were there that we knew, but there's new people there that God's doing work among. I think maybe the distance between the snapshot that we see now and the finished work in eternity, the travel between here and there is just hard. Amen? But I think there's a joy in knowing that all along the journey that God is doing things beyond what these two eyeballs can take in. Have you ever stopped and just praised God for the people that God is saving today? Now, you may not see them. They not be, may not be in your life, but they're somewhere out there. They might be in Cambodia or South Africa. They might be in Peru, probably Texas, right? Have you ever stopped and said, great is the Lord beyond my borders? Great is the Lord who's doing things beyond my horizon. He can be trusted. He can be loved. Let me pray for you, and then we're going to sing. I know it's been heavy today, guys. I love you. I've tried my best to try to tell you what it says. If today... Maybe the Lord has just struck you and you feel his calling on your life. Um, we just want to celebrate your, any response that you have to that. Uh, we believe that God does things in hearts before we ever do things with our feet or our hands or our mouths. Father, thank you so much for your church, for your people, for your word. I know it's been heavy today. God, I pray that the word is something that is digested throughout the week. In your people, I pray that as we stand and sing, that our hearts are full of the realities that we see here, that you've loved us, that you've called us to a holy vocation, though it's a burden. God, that we, we stand and we sing despite what other people may think or question, that we would, we would just be humbled by the fact that you chose us when we don't deserve it. God, thank you for frustrating our worldly plans. God, thank you for making your eternal plans succeed. God, help us to submit. Help us to walk. Help us to sing that great is our God beyond the borders of what we see. God, we love you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Everybody said, man, would you stand with us?